Beloved congregation, many of us were privileged this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper, to take our seat at the Lord's table. And of course, we are here tonight now in what is traditionally called a reflection service. Let me ask you a question. I'm asking that question of myself as well. I include myself here. What has been your response to what happened this morning? What was your response when you came home and returned home? Did what happened this morning cause you to worship? Because congregation, that's an important question. Because worship is one of the most reliable evidences that the Word of God has truly registered in our soul. A congregation, we may never take for granted what an extraordinary moment the Lord's Supper is. I do not want to elevate the sacraments above the Word, because the Word, of course, always has the preeminence. Ultimately, what the sacraments are, they are a visible affirmation of the Word of God. But the Puritans were fond of saying that in the sacraments, in the Lord's Supper especially, we do not get a different Christ than we do through the preaching of the Word. But we get Him better. And that's the point. That's why, traditionally, we have a reflection sermon, because what takes place at the Lord's table is profound and is extraordinary. Never does the Lord in public worship, comes so near to his people as in the Lord's table. And what's symbolized by the Lord's table, what Christ communicates by means of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, is so extraordinary that if we reflect on it, if we reflect on what that means, that the Savior said to you, take, eat, This is my body, which has been broken for you. Take this cup and drink it, for my blood has been shed for you. If that really sinks in, what that means, that by means of the sacrament, Christ wishes to affirm to your soul the absolute certainty of what he has accomplished on your behalf. And what that means, then we should have fallen on our knees and worshipped, worshipped the God who gave His only begotten Son also for me. The God who communicated by means of the sacrament His astounding and His amazing love. And so, How do we know that we really experience the truth of God's Word? When we experience, when when it becomes experientially real in our own soul, it cannot but produce worship. So the exercise of faith, and what I mean by the exercise of faith, when by faith we look afresh at Christ, when by faith we come to Him, when by faith we embrace Him, 
it cannot but produce the fruit of worship. And by that, we can measure, I can measure, how much we have benefited from the Lord's Supper in this morning hour. And so we're going to focus on this tonight by way of the last two verses of Luke 24. Verses 52 and 53. And they worshipped him, the Lord Jesus. The Jesus who just had departed from them. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So Luke's gospel also ends with the word of Amen, as we saw was true for the gospel of Matthew. And so these two verses tell us what transpired with the disciples between the ascension of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit ten days later. First of all, we see very obviously, and again, boys and girls, you can understand this. First of all, it says that they worshipped him. They worshipped their ascended Lord, who had gone up on high, blessing them. They worshipped him. Secondly, they returned to Jerusalem, not mourning, but they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This contradicts a a very old misunderstanding about this Lord's Day. And this is a, a misunderstanding that you will find, especially in the Netherlands, where people sometimes call this Sunday Orphan Sunday. And why? Well, in John 14, verse 18, which we read to you, it says in our English Bible, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. In the Dutch Bible it says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And so the common misunderstanding is that during this Sunday, between Ascension and Pentecost, the disciples were orphans. And that would mean, of course, that they were grieving. But when Christ said that, he was referring to the short period between his death and his resurrection. But very clearly from this text, these men did not behave like orphans. They were not mourning, they were not grieving. On the contrary, it says here, they returned to Jerusalem as they were directed by Christ. They returned with great joy. Second point. Number three, third point. And the disciples were continually in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, which for them still had such profound meaning. So three points. They worshiped Jesus, they returned with with Jerusalem with joy, and there they were continually in the temple. And so what was it that caused them to worship him? If you recall, we read that for the first time too in the Gospel of Matthew. Never before the death and resurrection of Christ do we ever read that the apostles or that the disciples worshipped their master. They followed him, they trusted him, they believed in him. But it is now after his resurrection, during that 40-day period, and especially at this culminating moment, that they worship him. In other words, as never before, 
Did the disciples understand that their, that their master was not only the promised Messiah, but they recognized that he was very God. That's what dawned on Thomas on that second Sunday, when he was the first one to make that remarkable profession. And when Christ revealed to him that he was all-knowing, and then he worshipped him and he said, My Lord and my God. And so here at this special moment, this extraordinary moment, everything came together for them. Christ had been teaching them for those 40 days. It all came together as never before they understood who he was. As I pointed out already on Thursday, we see how Christ ministers to them as prophet, priest, and king. Those are his three offices. His three offices which will endure forever. He will forever be the prophet of his redeemed people. He will forever be their priest. He will forever be their king. And we see that right here at the ascension as well. Because until the very last moment, he is teaching them as prophet. And then he blesses them as priest. He pronounces upon them that high priestly blessing that we find in Numbers 6. And the symbolism was remarkable, and especially for the disciples, because they no doubt had heard that blessing many times before, but never did they hear it in this way. And the difference was, when the priest would pronounce that blessing, it would be a wish that they would pronounce upon the people. But this blessing came from the lips of Christ himself. And so the very last thing he does, after teaching them, after instructing them, after opening their understanding, and after allowing them to understand the Scriptures as never before, and then he blesses them as priests. And, as we saw, and he ascends in royal majesty, in royal glory. And so they witnessed him departing as their prophet, as their priest, and as their king. And so never before had they had such a clear understanding of the triune God. We know from Matthew 28 that it was then for the first time that Christ explicitly mentioned the three persons of the Trinity, even though in his final discourse in John 14 through 16, he repeatedly is referring to all three, but then he mentioned them all three. Never before did they so understand the wonder of his priesthood. Finally, they understood why their master had to suffer and die, but also the wonder of his resurrection. Never before had they seen their master in such majesty and glory, except for the three who saw some of that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we could say that the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ in many ways was like the graduation exercise for the disciples. And what's the response to all of this remarkable, all these remarkable things that are happening here? The response is that they worship Him. Ah, you see, 
as Christ was leaving, and as he was spreading out his blessed hands, those pierced hands, that blessing that he pronounced upon them, that blessing descended into their soul in such a way that they could not but worship him. Their hearts were overflowing as they watched their master, as they were gazing up into the heavens, and as they saw him depart. In other words, their worship was the result of beholding the glory and the beauty and the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would not suggest that believers today have a similar experience to what happened here on the Mount of Olives. This was a very unique moment. This was a very unique event in redemption history. No human beings before or after have ever witnessed what they witnessed. But the thing that we can learn from what we have in common with the disciples, what true believers have in common with the disciples, is that when the Holy Spirit sheds light upon the person and work of Christ, when by grace, with the eyes of faith, we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory, in His beauty, in His preciousness, we cannot but worship. And that's exactly what the ministry of the gospel does. That's what God does through the ministry of His Word. That's what Christ does through the ministry of His Word. He unveils Himself to us. He reveals Himself to us. Oh, God allows us through the ministry of Word and Sacrament, He allows us to behold His glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. A congregation... When that happens, when we behold something of the beauty and preciousness of Christ, and oh, I so desire that that would have been your privilege this morning, my privilege, that we went home so enamored by what we witnessed, so enamored by what we heard, that our hearts were filled to overflowing. For you cannot behold the face of God in Christ. You cannot behold the beauty of Christ and His preciousness and not worship. And so you see, what this again confirms is a foundational truth. Is what delighted the disciples and what delights the true believer is to behold the beauty of Christ. I've, said, I've referred to this passage several times where the Apostle Paul talks about believers as those that look for Him. The congregation, every true believer knows of such precious moments, such precious moments that our soul was overwhelmed with the beauty and with the loveliness of Christ. I'm not suggesting that we experience that in the same way and with the same intensity at all times. But when the Spirit of God sheds light upon Christ, when He stirs our soul, when He enables us to behold Christ, when we see Him with the eyes of faith, when we sit at the Lord's table and we do it in remembrance of Him, when by faith, we eat His body, and by faith we drink His blood. How can we 
not worship then. So I ask again myself, and I ask you, was there any worship, any worship in your soul as you reflected on the extraordinary love of Christ, having come so very near to us, having revealed his countenance to us also by means of the sacrament? Because that's what delights the true believer. Let me say that again, congregation. A true believer ultimately cannot be satisfied except in Christ. A true believer is someone who in the deepest recesses of his soul yearns for Christ, longs for him, looks for him, desires to know more of him. That's why Jesus uses that analogy in the Beatitudes. And he said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Did you, did I, because I partake too, did we come to the Lord's table hungering and thirsting ultimately about him? Because then we have a promise here that those who hunger and thirst after Christ will never be disappointed. The Holy Spirit who works that intense yearning after him, that's why Christ uses the analogy of hungering and thirsting. We all understand what hungering and thirsting is. We all understand that hungering and thirsting are two basic human desires that must be satisfied. That's how it is when the Spirit of God dwells in us, the Spirit of Christ, whose work it is to glorify Him, whose work it is to unveil Him to us, whose work it is dwelling in us, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Him. It is He who stirs up that hungering and thirsting after Him. For the true believer, that hunger and thirst can only be satisfied in Christ. Once we have experienced that, once we have tasted something of the amazing love of God in Christ, we will never be the same. It will be a yearning in our soul that we would have a fresh revelation, a fresh manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is this, that this gazing upon Christ was the ultimate exercise of faith. Their faith came to full bloom here. Their faith came to full fruition. And by faith, they gazed upon their departing Savior. So I asked the congregation and myself, did it happen this morning? We were asked, we were commanded by the Savior to do this in remembrance of me. Was my focus, was your focus on this precious Christ? Did it stir your heart? Did it produce worship? What is worship? It's an important word in the Bible. Literally, it means to bow down before to render someone the honor they are worthy to receive. So in Bible times, 
people would often worship their kings. And yet ultimately they were not worthy of it. The Bible makes it very clear that ultimately there is only one worthy object to be worshipped, to be honored, to be surrendered to, to be adored. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, worship is an inseparable component of true experience. If we think of the, um, the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, it tells us what is the basic framework of Christian experience. The knowledge of your misery, the knowledge of deliverance in Christ, and the expression of gratitude, which is worship. So in true spiritual life, it is the awareness of who I am in myself. As the Heidelberg Catechism says it so beautifully in question 81. It's this loathing of myself that makes me look outside of myself and put all of my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the willing and able and all-sufficient Savior of sinners. And when I in my misery time and again put my trust in this precious mediator, I cannot but give thanks. And so conviction of sin, trusting in Christ, and then worshiping him in response to it, those three belong inseparably together. And of course we realize here that we see an immediate result of Christ blessing them. That blessing with which he blessed them literally overflowed into their hearts and lives. Of course, what's beautiful about this is that as Christ ascended with his hands stretched out, pronouncing that wonderful blessing, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, that well-known blessing that we're so familiar with, that the disciples experienced the power of that blessing within their very own soul. And the comforting truth for us today is that we are, also as a congregation, we are dwelling under those stretched out hands. Our exalted Christ, our high priest in heaven, continues to bless us. This blessing is not interrupted. We are dwelling beneath those pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why until this day, we continue to experience his blessing in our midst, in our very own souls. Not with the intensity that the disciples experienced this. The question is not how intense has been our experience. That's not the question. Because that can vary greatly. Also, that can vary greatly because we all have very different dispositions. Some of us are much more emotional than others are. That's not the point. Not the, the point is not the intensity. But the point is, was there any of this response? Do we know what that means? That response of worship. That response of holy adoration. When it dawns on us again and again how amazing the grace of God is. When it dawns on us how beautiful, how precious how lovely the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so they then returned to Jerusalem. That's our second point. They returned to Jerusalem 
with great joy. A congregation, again, there is some important instruction in this. Because the blessing, the high priestly blessing that they experienced, Christ still ministers that blessing to his people today. So what they had in their soul as they walked away from the Mount of Olives, they experienced in their soul that peace which passes all understanding. Oh, they had heard the wondrous testimony of the angels about their ascended master telling them, this same Jesus, this Jesus whom you have followed, this Jesus whom you love, this Jesus whom you serve, this Jesus who has become your all in and all, that same Jesus will return again. Oh, they were filled with joy. Their master told them to go to Jerusalem, to wait for the fulfillment of the promise of the Father, about which he spoke even before his crucifixion. That's why I read John 14 to you. That blessed anticipation that the Spirit of God would come upon them, equipping them to do what he called them to do, namely to go out into the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. Oh, there was joy in their hearts. And that joy, that joy was the result of the felt presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we don't have to compare ourselves to these disciples. But again, I would venture to say, congregation, every true believer knows of those moments that we experience something of that peace that passes all understanding, moments that are unforgettable. And the important point I want to make, however, is that it is God's desire that his people would experience that peace on a regular basis. We need to understand that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the fullness that is to be found in Christ. And in Christ, everything is to be found for us to experience that joy, that inner peace. That's why in John 15, Christ instructed his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion to abide in him. Oh, he says, abide in me. It was his desire that they would experience that unspeakable joy. These things, he says, have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And so this joy that they experienced was not some, um, some undefined emotion. No, this joy was directly related to their worship. This joy was directly related to the glory that they beheld in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a joy that was squarely grounded in the person and the work of Christ. But you see what those disciples experienced is Christ's desire for his people today. Congregation. Christ does not want his children to dwell in darkness. Christ does not want his children to primarily lead a miserable and grievous life. 
It is Christ's desire that we would experience the joy of his salvation. That's so remarkable about David's words in Psalm 51. David had not lost his salvation when he sinned against Bathsheba. But what he lost, he lost the joy of that salvation. This is the David who in Psalm 27 said so beautifully, One thing have I desired, and that have I longed for, to be in the house of the Lord. Why? To behold his beauty. Oh, David knew by experience. That's why when he was in exile, he wrote Psalm 84. He was jealous of the sparrow. The sparrow that had a place in the house of God. When he sinned with Bathsheba, he lost the joy of his salvation. He dwelt in darkness for at least nine months because of unconfessed sin. And then when Nathan comes and says, thou art a man, oh, then everything breaks loose. And he pens Psalm 51. And oh, we hear him confessing his sin not only, but you, you can feel the yearning, the yearning for the restoration of that joy that he had experienced before. Oh, he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me and restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is for God's children to experience that joy. That joy that comes from beholding Christ. Not from focusing on yourself. Not from looking inward. That's why we see the profound wisdom of Christ in giving us this loving exhortation, do this in remembrance of me. When you come to my table, when you partake of it, do not focus on yourself, but focus on me. Focus on my person. Focus on my work. Because the more we do so, and the more we learn to abide in him, the more we live to learn live with Christ, to live out of Him, to walk with Him daily, to live in daily fellowship with Him, the more we will experience the joy of His salvation. And it's very clear from Scripture. I could, I could quote many, many passages that affirm this. John 16, 24. Listen to what he says. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. So I ask myself, I ask you, when is the last time that we experienced the joy of his salvation? We're often so busy, so busy, so wrapped up in the things of this world and of this time. But it's not because there is no supply of grace to be had in Christ. That's why Jesus said, abide in me. That's why he said in John 15, everything that you need in order to flourish spiritually, everything you need is to be found in me. And the more you live out of me, the more you stay with me, the more you live in fellowship with me, the more you will experience the joy of salvation. Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Ghost. That's quite a statement. The kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Ghost. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 13, but rejoice that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. That's the purpose of the Lord's table. In a very unique way, in a sacramental way, God's glory, the glory of Christ is revealed to us so that we would be glad, not with a a superficial uh, joy. There's a lot of superficial Christianity, I realize that. No, this joy is a spiritual joy. This is a joy that can cause the tears to stream down your face. But it's a joy nevertheless. Dear believer, that is God's desire. God's desire is not, God's purpose, God's method is not for you to spend most of your days in darkness. God wants his people to live in the enjoyment of their salvation. But it will only happen, of course, if we abide in Christ. That's, of course, that's a, a whole other subject that I hope to address in the future. And the reason why so often we do not experience the joy of that salvation is because of our tendency to backslide, our tendency to, um, to not walk closely with the Master, to feed daily upon His Word. And so what they experienced in an extraordinary way is the experience of all believers to a greater or lesser degree. But all true believers will know something, will know something of that joy, of that peace, which passes all understanding. And of course, they were looking forward in Jerusalem to the fulfillment of that promise. They were looking forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which would enable them and which would equip them to do the task to which Christ had called them. We read it together, Luke 24, 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. It's remarkable, by the way, and I hope to address it in a future sermon. Again, I've mentioned it a few weeks ago, that they had to go back to Jerusalem. Of all places, Jerusalem. The city that had crucified Christ. A city that they would have bypassed. No, Christ says, that's where it begins. You must begin in Jerusalem. That's where I will pour out my Spirit upon you. That's where... The prophecy of Zechariah will be fulfilled that in there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And then finally we read that they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now you might ask the question, why the temple? Didn't the rending of the veil mean that the entire sacrificial system had come to an end? And the answer is yes. The rending of the veil meant that those sacrifices were no longer needed. Now, we know that the veil was repaired 
and that those sacrifices were administered for another 40 years until in 70 AD the temple was utterly demolished by the Romans. And so indeed there were still many Jews who went to the temple, who observed the daily uh, times of worship, who did not believe in Christ, at least not yet. But for the believing Jew, for those who had embraced Christ, that temple still continued to be a special place. Because I am certain, congregation, that they went back to that temple in a very different way than ever before. Now they understood what all of this symbolism meant. Christ had explained all of that to them. He opened the scriptures. He explained to them the symbolism of the entire sacrificial system. They now looked at that temple. They looked at the morning and evening sacrifice as a marvelous display of what Christ had come to do, what he had accomplished. In other words, for them the temple was still a place where everything testified of his glory. We read that in Psalm 29 verse 9. In his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. That's why David said, one thing have I desired, to be in the house of God, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so there was one place they wanted to be. They wanted to be a place that reminded them of their master. They wanted to be a place where they could continue to worship the Christ that now had ascended. And so their place was in the temple. Now, when it says here continually, does that mean that they were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, it simply means they were there regularly. They were there at all the appointed times. And of course, two of those appointments were the morning and evening sacrifice at 9 a.m. in the morning and 3 p.m. at night. Those were special times of worship. That's when the godly would gather around the temple and they would wait for the priest to come out and to pronounce that blessing which Christ had also pronounced upon them. And so that simply tells us that they did not miss a single opportunity. When there was a call for public worship, they were there. But we also know from Acts 1 what they did between those times of public worship. For we read in Acts 1 verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So it's evident that they engaged in public worship and they engaged in private worship. And again, there is a, a wonderful application for us, also as we reflect on the Lord's Supper. So what we are doing now, we are engaging in public worship. And the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is also part of public worship. And then we go back into the week. And then we engage in private worship. And when we are spiritually healthy, those two will wonderfully reinforce each other. In other words, if we prayerfully come to the house of God, longing and yearning and desiring to be fed and nourished, it will strengthen our soul 
and it will stimulate our private worship, our private walk with Christ. Conversely, if we faithfully worship Him privately, if we faithfully seek His faith, if we faithfully walk with Him, in other words, if we faithfully visit our closet, that private worship will stimulate our public worship. That means we will come out of a week having worshipped Him privately, longing to worship Him publicly. And then when we worship Him publicly, that will stir us up again to worship Him privately. So the two reinforce each other. Now I realize this was a very special time. I'm well aware of this. That's why I want to emphasize again, I'm not suggesting that we have to experience everything at the same level and the same intensity as these men. These were unique circumstances. And yet we can learn from them. We can learn from this. Congregation, the question for myself and you is, are we continually observing the means that God has provided? Do we prayerfully come to the house of God? Does our coming to the house of God, does it flow out of our daily walk with Him? And I will often repeat this congregation, that daily walk, that daily time alone with Christ, that closet time is so essential to the Christian life. And the devil knows the best way to make us backslide, the best way to bring us into darkness is to interrupt our closet life, to get us out of our closet so that we are so busy that we don't have the time to be alone with Christ. Oh, my dear congregation, I I pray that you would jealously guard that private time alone with the Word of God. Christ will not disappoint us. If we daily seek His face, if we feed upon His Word, He will not disappoint us. He has clearly promised that in His Word. There's no better means to safeguard us from wandering away from Him. But the danger, especially today, that we become so busy, we become so wrapped up in the things of this life that we neglect that private walk with Christ. And then we wonder why we are so spiritually weak and so spiritually anemic. Because God will not disappoint us when we seek His face, when we feed upon His Word. He's promised in His Word. He will bless us. Those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be satisfied. And so, as what we see here, they took their public worship seriously, they took their private worship seriously. And of course, they enjoyed fellowship of the saints as well, communion of the saints. I believe that's another um, serious problem in our day. We know that former generations took that much more seriously, those times of communion of saints. What a blessing it is when we can fellowship with other believers to stimulate our own spiritual life. That's what happened here as they steadfastly waited and pleaded upon 
the Savior to fulfill that promise and to pour out his Holy Spirit. So it was no wonder that they were praising and blessing God. Again, there you have the focus, the result of that, that, that prayerful interaction with Christ, publicly and privately, produced worship. Worship. Because ultimately, we were created to be worshipers of God. Our fallen state is that we are worshipers of self. That's what pride is. By nature, we are worshipers of ourselves. But the grace of God transforms us into worshipers of God. And so worship is one of the genuine evidences of true spiritual life. So let me end where I began. Is that true spiritual life, a true interaction with Christ, a true spiritual feeding upon His Word, and especially also the sacrament, cannot but produce worship. That's the very nature of spiritual life. So, congregation, I ask myself and I ask you, what evidence is there that we are lovers and worshipers of Christ? That's what true believers are, lovers and worshipers of Christ. And that we would examine ourselves, that I would examine myself. Our personal walk is, if there's anything in our walk, if there's anything in our life that hinders us in our spiritual walk, because in Christ there is an overwhelming fullness. Out of His fullness, He gives grace for grace. And His desire is, that we would experience the joy of his salvation. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And I pray that the administration of the Lord's Supper would yield that blessed fruit in my life and in your life, that it would stir us up again to take our private walk with the Savior seriously, to make sure that that time alone in our closet will be non-negotiable for us. That time in which we seek His face and we feed upon His Word. Congregation, in conclusion, in the reflection sermon, we need to reflect on the fact that the Lord's Supper makes visible that there is a distinction in the congregation between those that partake, and those who do not partake. We realize that that's not a perfect separation. That's only known to God. And yet, it does highlight it. So I ask those who did not partake, even our boys and girls and our children, you need to reflect on what happened this morning as well. Because ultimately, what this highlights is what matters. Why we come here week after week is whether we have a personal, saving relationship with Christ. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, let him be accursed. So even our boys and girls, I ask you, what were you thinking this morning? 
when you witnessed all this? Were there any of you who had a deep yearning in your soul that you could be there, that you long for the day that you may be there? Because you know, I want to make sure you understand that Christ is not just the Savior of adults. He's, he is desirous to be the Savior of boys and girls, of children. He said, suffer the children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so, congregation, that we go homeward now and reflect on what has transpired today. And may God grant that by the work of His whole Spirit, we may know Christ experientially. And that that experiential knowledge of Him and that experiential interaction with Him may produce the fruits that we see in our text. That it will produce worship. And that that worship will translate in a walking with the Savior and an abiding in the Savior. And it could be said of us that we are continually to be found in the means of grace, both publicly and privately, so that we too may praise and bless the God from whom all blessings flow. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank Thee, Lord, for the opportunity to be in Thy house again today, to hear Thy Word and to see it, to experience the wonder of Thy amazing love set forth visibly also in the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we have been called to self-examination also in this hour of reflection. We have considered the remarkable impact that it had on the disciples when they beheld the glory and the beauty of Christ. And yet, Lord, we too have been privileged to see the visible tokens that direct us to the glory and beauty of Christ. And Lord, we pray that what happened today would bear abundant fruit in our personal walk, in our personal lives, that it could be observed even by others that we have been with Jesus today. Remember us in mercy. We pray for those who do not yet know this Christ savingly. Oh, that they would seek Thee, seek Him while He is yet to be found, while He proffers peace and pardon. Go with us into this coming week. We ask for Thy divine protection as we go about our daily activities. Bless the labor of our hands. Bless our children and young people in school. And gather with us also for the special events this week and also this coming Lord's Day. And pardon our sins for Christ's sake. Amen.